0: What a privilege to be able to worship together. I loved it. Before I dive into my assigned text, which is Matthew 22, 1 through 14, let's do a quick review. I understand you all have been in Matthew for a while, and uh, we've gotten to the part of the story that we describe as Passion Week. And uh, just to set the scene again, The most talked about man in first century Judea has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and in apparent fulfillment of a 500-year-old prophecy of Zechariah. That's recorded in Zechariah 9, 9, one of about 300 prophecies that this Jewish rabbi would fulfill indicating that he was Messiah. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey, as the passage says, bringing salvation. The Jewish rabbi that came to town riding that donkey was certainly no ordinary rabbi if you believe the historical accounts of the New Testament historians. And they profess to be, by the way, New Testament historians. He had a reputation as a miracle worker. Supposedly, he could create food, stop storms, heal the sick, walk on water, and raise the dead. No small feats. The Jewish religious leadership had challenged his authority throughout his three year ministry. And his conflict with them was about to come to a head that week in Jerusalem. The city was bustling with pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, all from all over the Roman Empire. That would be northern Africa, near Asia, and southern Europe. And uh, they were celebrating something called Passover. Passover, just a reminder of what Passover was. And uh, again, one of those 300 passages, this time in the form of a story that points to what's about to happen that week in Jerusalem. It was a celebration of a night about 1,500 years earlier when thousands of Jews had killed lambs in obedience to God telling them to do it. And had spread the blood of those lambs over the doorposts of their homes to avoid the coming judgment of death on the land of Egypt. It was a symbolic foreshadowing of another atoning sacrifice, to use Jewish religious language, of much more cosmic proportions, big words. Again, that was about to occur that week in Jerusalem on a hill outside of town. But that's getting ahead in the story. Let's back up. Jesus had gone to the temple immediately upon arriving in town. And he had done for the second time what he had done earlier in his ministry. He had cleared the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court in the temple. And he did it because, if you recall the Old Testament passage, Jesus said the temple was built, God said, it would be a house of prayer for all nations. The only problem was, the only place that the all nations, if you weren't a Jew, could go to was the court of the Gentiles. And the Jews in the first century had turned that into an area of commerce where they sold sacrifices so there was no place for a gentile to go and worship and it really hacked jesus off bad and he got physical he got violent he got angry with righteous anger and he cleared the temple for the second time let's clear things out if i'm going to occupy it so to speak for a few days in passion week and he rebuked the uh jewish religious leaders that week i think josh or sean or others i don't know who's preached the last few weeks already shared with you a couple of those parables but they challenge his authority tell us about what authority you do these things we don't believe you got any kind of authority and uh, he shared with him three parables if you recall the first parable i won't go into details basically rebuked them for their rejection of him their disobedience to his teachings and then he prophesied they were going to kill him and they would And he prophesied they'd kill him and then he uses Old Testament wedding language, wedding feast language to describe their behavior specifically and to describe, we don't like these parts of the stories, God's judgment on them as a nation and on them as a people and them as a leadership because of their rejection to use the metaphor or a piece of the parable of his invitation or his father's invitation to come to a party someday in heaven. Where I quoted this phrase from a contemporary Christian song last hour, where all the drinks were on him. You can think about that one. Now, let's open our Bibles or your Bible app or your phone, whatever, or you can look on the screen, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, and I'll start to read and lightly exposit the text, then we'll make some application points. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, third parable. And, and what's a parable anyway? That's Bible words. It's a culturally relevant allegory. Now, if you're a math major, I didn't help you at all, okay? But it's a culturally relevant allegory. And, and, it, and the kingdom of heaven, he said, is like a king who prepares a wedding banquet for his son. Now, that, that doesn't translate exactly to us because this is the 21st century, not the 1st century. But back then, instead of sending out one of those save-the-date cards that's gotten to be real kind of fat fad in the last five years, I think it was started by some of the manufacturers' papers and prints invitations. And, and, and instead of sending out one of those, they'd send out no emails, no snail mails. They'd send out messengers the first time say, hey, the king's going to have a big party, and we want you to know that you're invited. You're one of the special people that are invited. Not sure when it'll be, you know, probably sometime in the spring or maybe this, this week of whatever month. But we'll let you know the specifics later. So it sends the servant out to those who had already been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. The Kind of quote the final invitation. You know, the wine is ready. The, the cows have been killed. It's a big feast. Come on. But they refuse to come. Now you're thinking, this is a bizarre story. Nobody not there wouldn't need to be some universal rejection of a banquet that a king's throwing in that culture in that day and time. And I would agree. You know what? He's doing this to show them how bizarre their behavior is. God has come to first century Palestine in the form of Mary's baby boy. They've heard the rumors about a virgin birth. They know those 300 Old Testament prophecies a lot better than Jim does or any of you do. They memorize this stuff in this oral tradition. They know what the Passover. They can get the metaphor of the Lamb of God. and they, They've known John the Baptist, said he was the Lamb of God, slain before the foundations of the world. They know all this stuff. So it's incredibly bizarre that these Jews would miss it when God shows up, raising the dead, walking on water, and healing the sick. And it's also bizarre in this story that these people refused to come to their party. Third time, he sends out more servants. Again, tell them, and he's getting a little irritated, tell those who have been invited, I prepared my dinner. Come on to the party. My oxen, my fatted calf have been butchered, everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. Some of them didn't. And they went off, one to his field, another to his business. And there's nothing wrong with working in your field or attending to your business. Proverbs tells us to do that diligently. But there's higher priorities at certain times. And some of the really bad actors that had been invited to the party got sick of it, and they did a bizarre thing. They abused the servants and even killed some of them. Well, the king was really enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers, and specific statement here, he burns their city this Jesus was probably crucified we think in about 30 or so A.D. give or take a year or two on the dating something's going to happen significant in 70 A.D. we'll get to that in just a minute about 40 years later specific fulfillment of that prophetic utterance by Jesus then he said to his servants the wedding banquet is ready but those I've invited do not deserve to come those who had as would say in other places the truth of God delivered to them even by angels and they don't get it they won't come they're stubborn they're rebellious they want to do their own thing so go to the street corners invite to the banquet anyone you can find now I said this last hour most of you know I don't have a seminary degree which means I don't know Greek but I can look up the Greek word for anyone and I did and it means anyone Okay, it's a duck it means anyone So. What is being talked about here, it's a universal invitation to people with addiction issues, to people with low IQs, to people with high IQs who think they're smart, who, people with gifted and talented, even people in Bentonville who make a lot of money. Is that a shot? Maybe. I'm from Fayetteville. It's okay. Excuse me. And uh, it, it's an invitation to even people from Fayetteville. It's an invitation To whoever your friends are that have got issues you don't think are worthy. It's to good people. It's to bad people. In fact, the text says that. The servants go out in the street to gather all the people they find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Wow. Right in the middle of all this judgment, there's this really cool passage that talks about this universal invitation to come to the party. But, unfortunately, the passage switched back to judgment. And I got to be true to the text. When the king comes in to see the wedding guests, it gets weirder. He notices a the man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now let me tell you about another tradition, uh, and this kind of fits. This makes sense. If you invite a bunch of scoundrels to your wedding feast who don't have any money, that probably can't afford to rent a tux. Okay, but if you're extremely wealthy, you did in that day time provide what's called. Festal garments, certain clothing that you had made available to your guests to come into the party. And so those had been available at no expense to the wedding guests. You follow this metaphor. It's going to get spiritual there in a minute. And he said, how would you get in here without wedding clothes? The king comes up to the guy and asks. And the man was kind of speechless. We don't know how the man got in there without wedding clothes. What happened? Why he didn't understand? whatever. Wow, the king appears to do something really harsh. But apparently wedding garments were available to him and he didn't put them on. The king told the attendants, tie his hands to feet, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a fun passage. And then it gets more theologically confusing to me. Verse 14, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Comments on the passage. Well, let's go to the two most difficult parts first. Allow me to be an agent of reality. Jesus was, apparently, at that point in time at least. We need to remember some things that we don't like to remember. Jesus says more about eternal punishment, accountability, and hell than all the other New Testament writers combined. The phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness is, is used exclusively by Jesus, and it's used multiple times to refer to eternal judgment. Now, let me make a confession. I don't fully understand everything about the afterlife, duh. And I don't fully understand everything about eternal punishment. I, but I understand. And the, the whole, what is the whole degrees of punishment thing? Was Dante Right? I don't really know for sure. I know you don't like that answer, and it doesn't sound like I have a good systematic theology, or an airtight systematic theology. I don't. But I understand enough to have what Jesus said I ought to have, a healthy respect and fear, or a holy awe for for the one he said had the power to cast a soul into hell. And I don't know all about hell, but I'm pretty sure I'd take heaven over hell, okay? And now, jumping from that to another difficult part of the text, verse 14, the whole chosen thing. I also confess, I don't understand all the nuances of the paradox, and I'm going to be a little bit arrogant right now. If you think you do, just keep it to yourself, okay? I've read all the books that I can get my hands on, and that's that much of all the books that have been written On the whole chosen thing versus Arminianism and Calvinism and all the different groups. I understand enough to know that I don't understand it fully, okay? But in spite of the fact that I don't understand all the nuances of the paradox between the universally open invitation to anyone to embrace the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That was a theological mouthful. And this whole chosen by God thing. In spite of that. I understand enough I understand enough of God's revealed truth in Scripture and the accounts of the prophets and the eyewitnesses to believe and to adjust my worldview accordingly my thoughts and my behavior accordingly try to to fit them to what I do understand see truth needs to be processed and we should be intelligent enough to adjust our thinking to fit the truth and not be goofy and believe that the truth will change to fit my wishes or my feelings or the latest whims of culture. Mark Twain, I bet you didn't think I would wrote Mark Twain about him right now, said this, and he's not a noted, fine, upstanding Christian person, or was not It's not the things I don't understand in the Bible which trouble me, but the things that I do understand in the Bible that really bother me. Clearly the parable, back to the parable, is focused on the first century Jews' stubborn refusal. It's a very specific parable to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. But there's more here than that. There's stuff for us too. There's also a danger inherent in anyone Continuing to reject God's invitation to embrace Jesus as their personal savior. In Jesus' parable, the king sets fire for the rebellious invited wedding guest city. Those who disregarded his invitation and who killed his messengers. Let's go to the killing messengers thing. I know that you probably understand it, but I'll say it. It's a very specific reference to prophets of the Jews that killed. A couple recently at that time. One that they had killed, no one they were going to kill. John the Baptist, killed by Herod. Stephen, who later the Jews would stone to death. Why? Because he preached an indicting sermon to the Jews after Jesus' death and resurrection. And said basically this, you killed the Messiah. And they killed him. It's also a prophetic reference to the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. If you know history, not just church history, this this is... Accounted by the, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus tell these stories. The Roman general Titus in 70 AD sacked Jerusalem, seized it for months. Eventually they got in. He told his troops not to burn the temple specifically, not to destroy it. But they were so enraged that they burned the temple to the ground. Wow. Jesus had said that would happen. Not only that, they slaughtered, depending on which account you believe, probably somewhere in between, a half a million to a million Jews when they ransacked the city. That's serious judgment. But please note that God withheld that judgment for another 40 years between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., even after the Jewish leaders, as the earlier parables had said, had killed his son. To give the Jewish leadership time to repent and embrace the, I like to refer to it this way, the supernatural, historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As attested to by hundreds of eyewitnesses, many who would give their life in defense of what they believed, or because of what they believed, what they'd seen, what they'd heard, and what they'd witnessed and validated by continuing miracles during that 40-year period of time in the name of Jesus by the apostles disciples and others so another part of the parable we need to talk about what is the wedding clothes thing that's a weird couple of verses there's two possibilities and I think both are accurate to some degree first and foremost the wedding clothes or the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's all over Hebrews, all over Romans. I'll read one passage of Scripture in just a minute. Let me use a legal term. It's the righteousness that's imputed by faith. From our side of the salvation transaction, definitely the key element is faith. And then God imputes the righteousness. Let's go accounting term. The Bible calls it reckons righteousness to us. It's like there's this ledger and our account is deficient and God takes the righteousness of Jesus and he throws it on our side of the ledger. He reckons to us righteousness, which we obtain by faith. Some examples, even from the Old Testament, from Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him, that's an accounting term, as righteousness. That's the righteousness we're talking about. First and foremost, the wedding clothes that you could put on that are given to you by the king to come into the party are the righteousness of Jesus Christ theologically. Romans 3, I think he expresses it best, 21 and 20, through 24 or 25. I'll go through 25. But now a righteousness that comes from God. Apart from the law, the Old Testament law or the keeping of rules and regulations, has been made known to which the Law and the Prophets had already testified. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all, all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned, Hebrews, Jews, Greeks, Americans, All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Of the glory that was intended for mankind back there in the garden in the beginning. That our ancient ancestors blew when they joined the snake in the rebellion. And now those people who embrace this righteousness by faith, this atoning sacrifice by faith, are justified. That means declared righteous freely by his grace his undeserved favor through the redemption another illegal word straight out of the book of leviticus it's a property law term it's when creditors take land because you couldn't pay your debt and then someone comes in book of hosea the kinsman redeemer and buys back the family farm that had been lost early before what's the family farm planet earth our ancient ancestors sold it out to the snake if you want to get deeply theological The first Adam blew it. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, paid for the farm and bought it back from the snake. Let's go with that just a minute. I went off script last time I'm going to do it again with this thought. Remember out in the wilderness, Jesus is dealing with Satan one-on-one after 40 days of fasting. And Satan comes to him and he says, the kingdoms of this world are mine. I have the right to give them to whoever I want. I didn't say this last hour. If you really want to get weird, go read Daniel 10. And Jesus does not argue with Satan about that. Later he argues about the Word of God and other things, but he didn't argue about that. In fact, he validates the truth of that statement later when he refers to Satan as the ruler or the prince of this world. And Jesus knows he's right. He does have that power. Where did he get that power? probably back there in the garden when he stole it from the two people, the king and the queen, that had been given the title deed to the planet and they handed it over through the rebellion. We're not clear on that, but he apparently had spiritual authority. And I don't profess to understand all of this, but I'm pointing out some important things to you. And so Jesus, by fulfilling God's own sense of justice, That required the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone, to cover, to pay for the sins of Adam and Eve's kids and them as well. Gets back the family farm. He redeems you and I from the power of death. He buys us back from our slave master, Satan, by paying for us with his own life. Why did God write the script that way? I don't fully understand but as I always like to say, I <laughs> was out a couple of nights this week on a fishing trip, and I look up at that moon in that night sky, and I realize some things. When I look up into a night sky, I didn't have anything to do with this. <laughs> this is not my universe. It's not yours. I don't get to write the rules of the universe. The physical rules are the spiritual rules. It's his universe. It's not yours, and it's not mine. And to appease his own sense of justice, he wrote himself into the story as the sin sacrifice. Just a reminder of several things that are big and universal about the gospel. Who was I? Secondly, the clothes are the practical. And this is the part that we don't like. Those wedding clothes are also the practical personal righteousness. Righteousness. That we're supposed to be practicing as evidence that we've been born again, that we have the Holy Spirit, that we're participating with that Spirit in this process called sanctification, that we're different than we were 20 or 30 years ago or three days ago when we received Jesus Christ, when we embraced this gospel by grace. We're supposed to go about doing good deeds Manifesting the ethos of heaven by the way we spend our money, by the way we live our lives, by the way that we use stuff, by the way we treat other people when they don't give us our order in the driving window right. By the ordinary encounters of life, we're supposed to be different than, we're not perfect, but different. So part of that, if you would go to the book of James, it's kind of an in-your-face, if you want to talk about works, are good works. The fruit of an ongoing relationship with Jesus are wrapped up in those wedding clothes, too. Tangible evidence that we really know him. Let's go to James because he's the most in-your-face book about doing good deeds. And I'm going to put my name in the blank, and he says this to me. Jim, someone will say to you, James 2.18, you have faith and I have deeds. James says, I'll say to you, show me your faith, Jim, without your deeds without some evidence of a changed life, some fruit around you. And I'll show you my faith by the way I live, by the way I act, by what I do. James says it's as simple as that. Revelation 19, 6 and 9 seems to elevate this as well. That This is a two-part thing. This is God's grace and His righteousness imputed to us, but it's also tangible evidence on our part. John, in the Spirit, he says... I don't know exactly what that means, but it means more than just, I was feeling religious that day. He's having visions, visions of heaven, visions of the end of time. And one of the things he sees and hears is Revelation 19, 6 through 9. He says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, thousands and millions, maybe billions of people. Like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. And people were shouting, Hallelujah. They were excited about God. It's okay to be excited about God. Even publicly, it's okay to be excited about God. More on that in a minute. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. This wedding reference is all throughout the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, too. We'll look at it again there in just a few minutes. The wedding of the Lamb is coming. His bride, who's his bride? It's clear from Scripture, his bride is you and me. We are his beloved. We're the apple of his eye. He loves you. He loves you. He deeply desires a loving relationship with you. His bride has made herself ready. Wow, it indicates there's something the bride has to do. There's an our part to this thing. Fine linen, bright and clean, there's those festal wedding garments, was given to her to wear. There it indicates, emphasizing the other side, that those clothing was given by Jesus. This righteousness was given by Jesus. It's this two-pronged thing. And then, I know you're not going to like this, but there's something in brackets that appears, meaning it wasn't in the most ancient manuscripts, so they bracket it, but I'm going to read it. A scribe added it trying to explain like I'm trying to do this morning. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, John, write this. Blessed are those, all oh, the happiness of those, who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God I'm giving you this morning and in the first century. Well, applications. Let's get to applications. Let's, here's the way I chose to do it when I was preparing my little talk. I want to look at all the characters in the story and ask who you identify with and why. First possibility, maybe you've just been casually dabbling with Christianity. I mean, it's good for the kids. You don't want them to uh, grow up to be juvenile delinquents and embarrass you, do you? Uh, but maybe you've just been dabbling with Christianity. And you're more concerned as an invited guest with the business of this life on the spinning globe. Good things. By the way, it's not bad to be concerned about your business or your farm. In fact, Proverbs it tells us that. We're supposed to be concerned about those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's other things that have higher priority. Things like your job, your family, your hobbies, your house, or your investment. Maybe that's consuming your thought life. Maybe you're not totally sold out to the one who's calling you daily, Luke 9, 23. He says, Jim, you got up this morning. I'm going to offer it to you again. I'm offering it to you every day that you breathe my air. It's a cross on which all of yourself is supposed to die daily. And by the way, I'm offering it to you with nail-scarred hands. Maybe with, Maybe you're not at that radical stage of commitment. You'll even consider that possibility. Or maybe you don't realize that this Holy Spirit's still the same in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. And you have the option of developing God antennas and being aware that He wants to deal with you in a supernatural way on a daily basis. He does. Maybe you're not totally sold out to His desires. Solomon described life on this planet as life under the sun while we're here. How are you going to spend the hours of your days? What's number one priority in your life? Maybe that's who you most identify with in the story. Those servants, they didn't, or those invited guests that didn't kill the servants, they just had better things to do. Number two, I doubt any of you are violently opposed to the king and want to kill his servants. If so, go kill another messenger, not me this morning. You're not likely to want to kill messengers. So probably none of us identify with those guys. Most likely, though, good news is that all of you have accepted the king's invitation. And you're looking forward to the party, and I would say, that's a really good deal. It's a really good thing. As I get older and older, I realize more and more, heaven's a really good deal. It really is. I'm looking forward to that day. I hope, though. You're not like that poor guy that showed up at the party improperly dressed. Some suggestions. Embrace now and every morning anew the grace of God. Every day, every morning when you get up, get on your knees and embrace the grace of God. Thrive in it. Walk in it. Live in it. And then swing out into eternity someday with this only hope. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is going to make me righteous before a holy God. The grace of God. Another suggestion. If you've never done it, put your faith in a real historical Jesus. A Jesus that performed real miracles. The gospel is not some cosmic metaphor. These people these profess to be eyewitnesses or they've interviewed eyewitnesses. It's a historical reality. Real Jesus, real cross, real miracles, real tomb, real death, really came alive again, really appeared to over 500 people, really sits on the throne of the universe, awaiting the day the Father will turn to his Son and say, Go get your bride. If you've never fully identified with Jesus in baptism as a believer, do it. I got this from Francis Chan when Jesus issued the invitation at Pentecost when Peter did excuse me to repent and be baptized no one asked to engage him in a theological debate about baptism nobody they simply repented and about three thousand or more got baptized that day Jesus said we make disciples by baptizing them and then teaching them his value system finally Do good things in Jesus' name and don't be ashamed of him in public. In culturally appropriate ways, sure, but don't be afraid to have God conversation in public or to pray in public and do good, just simple good deeds. It's tangible evidence you belong to him. The Bible describes it in several ways. Salt and light is one way. Another way is shining like stars in the night sky in a depraved culture that needs to see you light up. The areas around you live out the values of heaven not to earn daddy's favor you've already gotten his favor you've been chosen whatever that word means he loves you you're his but reflect his value system if nothing else to as an offering back to him so that the people in your sphere of influence can see that your daddy is good as you do good deeds in his name now let me throw out one last possibility who we might identify with in the story. And I think we should. We are clearly commissioned by God to be his messengers in the story as well. Clearly. It's a mandate. The gospel writers record it. Jesus' mandate to his bride, the called out ones, Matthew 28, 18 and 20. You know it. He said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me." That's that spiritual authority I talked about earlier. He's taken it back. He said, it now belongs to me. And Colossians says, he made a public spectacle of his defeat of Satan at the cross. In some way, basically, he rubbed his nose in it. He says, it's mine again. And based on that kingdom authority, he's delegating that to you and I. I'm trying to boost your spiritual self-esteem right now. He said, based on that authority, go and make disciples of all nations. The church is supposed to be a movement. A going out into the culture, not some monument. Going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach him to obey everything I've told you, and I'll be with you as you do it to the end of the age, until you die and come to see me. Luke 1 8, excuse me, Acts 1 8. Luke records in Acts 1 8 the last words of Jesus to his disciples. It's a basic prophetic reiteration of the Great Commission that Matthew recorded. He said this, last words, before he ascended in a cloud. You will receive power. The word is dynamite. We get dunamos is the Greek word. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So if we really know Jesus and we're living in a relationship with him, we've been delegated incredible authority and incredible power, Holy Spirit power, to proclaim this gospel in all kinds of ways. This is the gospel of salvation by Jesus atoning death. And to proclaim his values by the way we live. Let me put it in the other way. You've probably heard me say this. I say it a lot to myself. No matter how feeble you are in your faith. If you have the Holy Spirit. The atmosphere ought to change when you walk into a room. And you ought to be aware of it. When you walk into a room. A manifest presence of the living God walks into the room. The power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is residing in you when you walk into a room. The atmosphere ought to change. You ought to be aware of it. We have to be intentional about this. Because sometimes I tend to forget the power of the gospel to transform lives around me. And I get low spiritual self-esteem, or I get like Western Christians tend to get. I buy into some intellectually tame form of Christianity. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe." Remember what one of his characters said? He's no tame lion. He's not a tame lion. And it's time we stop trying to tame him. Quick story from four days ago. God reminded me of this here in Benton County, in Washington County, just four days ago. I uh, came up here on a fun mission. I was really, really tired Wednesday. <clears throat> it had been a long run. And, but I came up here with Doug Harriman to Bentonville. And Doug, some of you know Doug, He's was actually up here last week in church with you. His wife, Janie, shared, she's the one that's doing the global shop. When we were up here, uh, Doug, he's our building and ground. He's also one of the founding elders of our church. But he's one of our buildings and ground staff And so he understands buildings and all that stuff, and I'm, I don't. But I brought him with me because I was negotiating the lease. And we were up here to meet with Melissa Carter, and we were up here to meet with amy ferguson and melissa's mom gina and sean womack and and it was just a fun meeting for about an hour and a half we were getting to do cool stuff we we're over in a space a really cool building down there on the end of main street that we're going to rent hopefully put beautiful Lies boutique in and we were talking floor plans and there was a lot of creative energy in that room and we were negotiating with matt stenson the owner and his architect and And it's just a fun meeting, Lots of intelligent, creative people are meeting, and I think all of them were Christ followers, hopefully. And we're planning and scheming and negotiating for a good cause. We're trying to do good in Jesus' name. Well, on the way home, Doug and I stopped for a healthy, light lunch consisting of a third-pound chili cheeseburger and fries at Patrick's at the Elm Springs exit. Everybody been to Patrick's at the Elm Springs exit, and no hands are going up. There's a couple. Uh, Yeah, they're, they're all guys. Yeah, the average pickup ratio is much higher at Patrick's than it is in any Bentonville parking lot, I assure you. There were more pickups in that parking lot. It's a very blue-collar joint. And uh, we were with a totally different crowd than when we walked in. And when we walked in, and and the way you go into Patrick's, there's a line you order, and then you go sit down, and they bring you your, your cheeseburgers. And God showed up. I wasn't looking for him in Patrick's, but he showed up in a really different way than I'd experienced him in a long time. He wanted to demonstrate for Jim, again, the raw power of the gospel to transform a life. The woman in front of us in the line was a little bit, I could just feel, she was a little different than I was. And and she had on a bright neon shirt that had about five to ten statements about Jesus in in bright letters she was like a walking religious Jesus billboard and 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 she was looking at me and I was trying not to make eye contact because I didn't want to be embarrassed and uh, and she was a little rough-looking too she was probably in her 50s or 60s but she very clearly wanted to make a statement about Jesus that she was a Jesus follower and I was subtly trying to read her t-shirt And about that time, this all happened in two to three minutes. Two other women walked in. One of them was kind of older, like her, and and the other one was really young, in her probably early 20s. And and they looked really rough, too. And the young girl had just gotten out of jail. And she was vacillating between talking. She also had been in the drug culture, talking kind of sinner smack and religious smack. And they were loud. And socially awkward, and it was kind of weird. I was kind of, you know, embarrassed a little bit. And they were talking about Jesus like he was fixing to have lunch with them. And 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 the, their language is really kind of strange. And, uh, and it's particularly this young girls. And before the line could even move, uh, uh, another young man, very lean, uh, and. Uh, just he was rough-looking, blue-collar worker too. Gets up, and as he gets by these women, he recognizes the young girl. And he too had just come out of some form of significant sin patterns in his life, some form of addictions that involved drugs. And and they started connecting, and they talked. They start talking real odd again about Jesus. And I'm going, what in the world is happening in front of me? I, I said it last hour. I thought about it. It was like one of those two to three minute scenes from the really low budget Christian films <laughs> and it was happening right in front of me I was like three feet from it and 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 and, and they had this conversation where he said he only had a couple of friends now he left all of his drug friends she said she only had two or three and two of them were these ladies that she was with and there was this Jesus encounter that was real loud and the ladies shirts case real bright and then they got their food. He left and we sat down. And I thought, what has just happened? Jesus said, I want to tell you what's just happened, buddy. I still work in the same way I did in the first century. And I still can pick up broken sinners. And just like I picked you up about 40 years ago out of a garbage dump that you were wallowing in and chose to breathe life into you. I'm choosing to breathe life into those two kids you just saw. And don't ever forget it. This power that's inside of you, this power that they've experienced, it represents raw spiritual power that can transform lives and change destinies. And that's the gospel in Patrick's on Wednesday. Let me take a hard turn. This time it's the form of a late 2nd century liturgy. Let's go liturgical. I know it's extremely difficult for evangelicals and charismatics to go liturgical. It is for me but I thought God wanted me to read it to you but he let you off the hook. My slides didn't get up here and so I don't have the liturgy you have to read along with me so I'm just gonna read it to you. It's the Apostles Creed. I wish it was on the screen so you could read it with me. Well I don't read it. In the late 2nd century this is what changed Western civilization. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of Heaven and Maker of Earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried, and He descended to the dead. And on the third day, He rose again, and He ascended into heaven. And he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. And he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. One holy church. The communion of saints. That's you and I. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the dead. And life everlasting. Amen. Two verses, and I'm done. Go Old Testament. Isaiah 61 10 Isaiah gets excited one day about 700 years before Jesus comes to earth He says this and I join him. I hope you are excited about it too. I delight greatly Isaiah said in the Lord My soul rejoices in my God. Why for he has clothed me in garments of salvation And arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I'll close with my wife's favorite passage of Scripture. What a refreshing thought to lead into worship. Jude 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you someday to his daddy without fault, And with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's stand and engage that God in worship right now.